Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Wow, what an incredible morning, first off. Like the worship, the communion. Now I have to finish it. <laughs> it's not going to be a high note, but I won't devalue myself down to a low note. It's going to be just a solid note. It's hard. A solid note. <laughs> so we ha- I'm finishing the parable series. We've been looking at parables. Um, we've done Kingdom of Heaven, so that is the parable of the sower. We've done Kingdom and its people, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Kingdom and its ruler, parable of the two lost sons, not the prodigal son. Uh, kingdom and community, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I get to finish it off. <laughs> and these parables have been really interesting because they all point us forward to heaven, to the place we belong. We live among the pain and difficulty of the fallen world, but we carry a hope as citizens of a different kingdom. Our destiny is somewhere else. And the only way to enter through that kingdom is through Jesus. And thankfully, he's given us these parables to show us what the kingdom of heaven is like. Um, so that only those who listen and understand, I believe it was somewhere near the first week who said, He told parables because you have to listen and understand. It's not just hearing it. It's not hearing an instruction. You have to listen to it. You have to understand it. You have to grow closer to fully grasp what he's, the picture he's painting. Um, so it is all about a relationship with Jesus. Um, and yeah, this week is the kingdom and its future um, with a look at the parable of the banquet, a parable in which Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a banquet. <laughs> Pretty self-explanatory. Um, now, everyone loves a good banquet. Everyone has a thing they love about a banquet. Um, for some people, they like to dress up smart. Maybe they like a tuxedo or a dress, especially in a room full of other people dressed like that. Um, for some people, it's socializing. Weirdos, but they exist, and they enjoy socializing with other people. And you know, um, For some people, it's the dance floor for whatever reason. Even though everyone is so skeptical at the start, and it's like a couple of kids at the front, until everyone really gets into it and then it becomes full. But uh, what me and I'd probably say my dad love most about a banquet is that it's got good food. Yeah. <laughs> a banquet is where I can get my hog roast. It's where I can get ice cream sundaes and stuff like that. That is where a banquet is. I will judge a banquet based on its food alone. Yeah. And the mo- but despite all of those things and despite how incredible all those things are, the most important thing about a banquet is that it's a celebration. It's ceremonious. And it's made to be this massive event. Um, they're usually very formal as well, like weddings have banquets. You're meant to dress up smart. You don't come in like a t-shirt and jeans. They're ceremonious. They're like big, huge formal events. And while I was planning this, I was thinking, how on earth am I going to bring a banquet here? How am I going to make this feel like a banquet? And I don't have enough money for food, but I did find a, um, a decoration that people use for banquets. This was a 16th to 18th century decoration that they'd have at banquets. And when I mean banquet, I mean royalty. Like, this was for the rich and the wealthy. Um, and I actually bought it with me here. I mean, it took a, it took a bit of effort, but I've got one. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's interesting to look at history and how things have changed. And it's quite priceless, so I'm going to be careful as I bring it out. It is. It's a pineapple. This used to be the centerpiece of many banquets. This was a luxury in the 16th to 18th century. So what they do is, sometimes they'd eat it in a pineapple sorbet or something like that, but what they usually do is they display it. 
for whatever reason. I mean, it looks very regal. And it was a very rare thing in those days. Only the wealthy could have a pineapple. And on top of that, to preserve it, because it's a prop, you're not meant to like, hang it up. To preserve it, they'd cover it in sugar and candy it. So now, on top of it being a pineapple, a very luxurious thing of itself, they've now covered it in another luxury. And now it's just the most incredible thing ever. <laughs> so much so that people would rent this out for banquets. They would rent a pineapple for a night. And in fact, you can see there, it was the subject of paintings and like, if you go into London, they have these little cone things. If you've ever wondered, that looks like a pineapple. It's because it is, because it was a symbol of wealth, and that was what they used for banquets. I'm just going to put it there. It is beautiful, isn't it? Um, but it kind of shows that times have changed, and earthly banquets are going to be nothing like the Kingdom of Heaven's banquet. I mean, I, this was a wealthy, expensive thing back in those days, but I got this at 85p at Aldi, and we now argue about whether it belongs on pizza or not. No comment. But how things have changed and how um, the kingdom of heaven is going to be like a banquet. It's not going to be exactly a banquet or anything you can compare to here on earth. It's going to be so, so different. And in that way, it's going to be so, so amazing. So uh, now I'm going to go into the Bible after talking about pineapples. Um, Luke 14. Um, I'm not going to bring up the verse yet because there's some context I need to get through first. So... Um, the Pharisees had invited Jesus to a banquet, and everyone was scrambling to the head of the table um, because in those days, where you were seated at a banquet was your status. So for the head of the table would be the highest honor. Um, only the, the powerful and those with a high status would be at the head of the table. And, you know, those lower would be at the, the bottom end of the table. So it was a great honor to be at the head of the table. And they were all scrambling for this seat. And when Jesus saw this, he used it as an opportunity to teach humility and said that you should always go for the lowest seat, that you should always go for the least seat at the table, because then when you sit at a higher seat and someone more distinguished comes in, then you're going to be moved to a lower seat. You're going to be dishonored. But if you sit lower, then the host will see you there and honor you and move you up the table and will honor you in front of everyone. So in other words, he was teaching these Pharisees to be humble, to have that humility, to sit at the lower end and be honored. Um, and he uses the phrase, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this was not a throwaway line. He was comparing this banquet to heaven, even this early on. Um, in fact, in James 4.10, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Um, in heaven, to get that, to be honored in heaven, we need to be humble and to be a servant. And to serve those others in needs before our own. It's like um, when uh, the two disciples are arguing about who will have the right hand of, who will be sat at the right hand of God. And he said something along the lines of, uh, the greatest among you will be a servant to the others. Yeah. It won't be who's the greatest, it'll be who's the servant to the rest. Yeah. Um, and he continues on in Luke 14, and he turned to the host and he said, When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. This was unheard of for a banquet. This was unheard of, to invite the lowly, especially for someone like a Pharisee who was all about status and power and has been basically called out for their hypocrisy, the entire New Testament, basically. And if you look back at the parable of the Pharisee, um, how he prayed to God and he would say, I'm above all these sinners. 
they all had this personality of having a status and feeling like they're above everyone else. But that's not how you're honored in heaven. And that was what Jesus was pointing out to them. Um, so, Luke 14, verse 15 to 24. I'm finally at the parable of the great banquet. Um, and after hearing all of this about God reward you for inviting those who cannot repay you, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied with this story. And it's interesting that instead of going, yes, it would be, he then tells the story. Because <laughs> um, it could have been cut off there and we wouldn't have heard this story at all. But we hear this story this, which explains the kingdom of heaven. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. First off, these excuses are laughable. They're, they're clear lies, honestly. Um, they're so full of pride as well, because clearly these were wealthy people to come to a banquet and to own a field and five pairs of oxen. These were wealthy, wealthy people. But they made these excuses to not come to this banquet. For example, if you look at the field, I have to go and inspect it. You've bought the field already. Why you now expect it? Because he's lying about it, obviously. What, this guy bought five pairs of oxen and he hasn't tried them out? He's lying about it. And I mean, the man who just got married, it seems like a fair excuse. But in those days, when you got married, the whole village would celebrate for a week. So the fact that this man is preparing a banquet and he's not invited to this other one, it means he hasn't been married and he's clearly lying about it. He's making up excuses to not come. Um, and the thing is, this is incredibly rude as well, because when you read it, you think, oh, well, they suddenly found themselves busy or they suddenly excused themselves. No. In those days, they asked you before the banquet how many people were going, yeah. because then they know how much food to prepare. It is like if I said, okay, well, we're going to have four to five people around the house. I only need one bucket of KFC, or I need only one pizza, because <laughs> that, that's how much food I'm going to have. But the fact is, they've said yes, but now they've excused themselves. So now this poor man has prepared this giant banquet and everyone has made excuses not to come. It's not good, it's rude. <laughs> like, how could you refuse food? They had said yes, but now that the banquet is set, they make excuses. And it seems like a stupid, stupid thing to do. But as a side point, it makes me wonder what laughable excuses I make to avoid a relationship with God. I've said yes, and I've said that all, I, all you've said is true. I believe that. But on a daily basis, I excuse myself from being in that presence. I excuse myself from attending that banquet. He's ready to satisfy our spiritual hunger. I mean, the moment we say yes, it's like he prepares a banquet. He's prepared all of this for you to satisfy you, but you've made an excuse. So please don't excuse yourself after accepting one of the greatest invitations for one of the most laughable excuses. Now, uh, moving on to verse 21. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious, and rightly so, and said, Go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, There is still room for more. So his master said, Go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full, for none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. Like I said before, inviting the poor, the crippled, blind, and lame was unheard of. This was inviting the lowest of the low. This was inviting the outcasts of society. 
um, who, are, who, as it says here, are living on the streets and the alleys, and yet they have been given this invitation to a great feast, to a great banquet. And, I mean, think back to the pineapple, which is a sentence I never thought I'd say, but the reason it was so popular for banquets is because banquets are meant to intimidate and impress people. It's meant to invite your rich friends and then get invited back. That was the purpose of a banquet. So to invite these people off the street to come and eat your food and to have these seats of honor because no one's sitting in them anymore, that is true humility. And that is what the kingdom of heaven is like, which is, as the man said at the start, a great blessing. And Jesus has often shown a liking towards those people who are rejected. As he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus never ate with kings or the wealthy. He ate with, quote-unquote, scum, because he was humble enough. And, I mean, if you really think about it, he attends a banquet of a Pharisee. And at this banquet, I imagine he wouldn't have got a seat of honor. I don't think he would have been the head of the table at this Pharisee's banquet. And he was humble enough to take a lower seat, a lower seat far lower than he deserved to attend. And he knew that those who serve and those who are humble, they have the invitation to heaven, not those who intimidate and impress other people. To love the unloved and honor the dishonorable. And they are invited. And looking forward to those outside the village, uh, as he says, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges. And this is actually a hint towards Jesus inviting the Gentiles. Yeah that it was no longer just the Jews in the, like the parable is like all the people in the village and then they've gone outside that village. It's no longer just the Jews, it's the Gentiles as well. It's moved forward and now we have that relationship with God and we can have that. We can have an honorable seat when we show great faith. It is much like the Roman centurion um, in Matthew 8, 10, 11. Uh, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. What's even more encouraging is that even when all of them have been invited, they found everyone in the streets and the alleys, that there is still more room. Don't feel like that there's not a seat for you and that there's not room for you to join. There is so many room. There's so much room. You are invited. And there is always more at the table of the Lord. You have an invitation to be honored at a great banquet. And our part in that is to accept it. But... That invitation, however, comes at a great cost. It's not meant to be easy. And the people hearing these stories knew that Jesus was saying that this kingdom would be hard to find and lead to a lifestyle that is so often in conflict with the way this world works. And I'm sure you'll find that as well, that we are so often in conflict with other people. As it says in Luke 14, verse 25 to 29, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, otherwise you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. I do not want that. Funnily enough, when I was researching this and looking at, you know, podcasts and stuff like that, everyone loves to talk about uh, give up your own life and carry your own cross. Everyone kind of skips over the hate everyone else part. <laughs> and I don't blame them. It's quite a challenging statement. And I want to make very clear, he is not calling you to hate anyone. 
He's not doing that. The Bible teaches us to honor our, our father and mother, to cherish our spouses. That's not what we're being called to. It's an exaggeration, okay? It's because our family is one of, like, the biggest influences in our lives. It's our biggest loves. It's the, um, the people who are always there for us. And it's like God is above that. It's an exaggeration. Um, and your love for God is above the things we love most. Um, instead of your family being the most influential people and the people you're dependent on, it, as a disciple, it should be God the most influential thing in your life, what, we do, what you depend your life on, what you build on. It also says that, as well as your family, even your own life must be hated in comparison. Your own desires are second to his. That is being a disciple, to give up your own life for God. Um, something many people in the Bible have struggled with, as well as ourselves, like the man who asked Jesus what more he needed to do to go into heaven, and when told to sell his possessions and give what he owed to the poor, he was unwilling. Or uh, when Jesus called out his disciples, he would, sell, he would say, drop everything and follow me. Um, and people have made so many excuses in the Bible as well, like Moses, who said, I'm not a good speaker, and la-di-da-di-da. There are so many prophets and people who've had this great calling and have made up excuses because they don't, you know, they, they don't give up their own life. And um, Matthew 10, verse 38 to 39 says, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it, but if you give up your life for me, you will find it. It's very paradoxical. Um, and to be a disciple, to take up your own cross, um, that's quite an interesting statement to make, <laughs> but it's saying that you're accepting, along with Jesus, you're accepting the opposition, the humiliation, the suffering, and even death for following his word to take up that cross just as Jesus did. And are you willing to do that? I can't honestly say I am. I mean, I like to be liked. <laughs> I like being agreeable. I get embarrassed and ashamed really easily. I don't want to be humiliated. And quite rightly, I despise suffering and death. <laughs> I don't like those things. It's hard to talk about. Yeah. But the easy way is just so easy. <laughs> but at least I know that Jesus has taken that up with me. Yeah. And that... It's a journey. It's something you grow into. You won't, maybe you won't have all those things at the start, but as you grow with Jesus, you realize how, how important this is and how much you need to, not sacrifice, but the price that comes with being a disciple. And this commitment is not something you give 50 or 70% to. Like it says with the foundation that um, you need to calculate the cost. What it's saying is you need to give your all. This is not a 50 or 70% thing. You need to give all you have um, to build that foundation. How much are you willing to give for that? Because giving 50% is like being lukewarm water. And the Bible says that God spits out lukewarm water. How much can you give or devote to God? What is no longer yours but now his? Um, as stewards of our possessions, they are now his, what he wants to do with them. A disciple gives up everything they have to follow Jesus, which is a great, great cost. The more we humble ourselves and give, the more we are rewarded, the more we are honored in heaven. Um, and not perceiving that cost is like being the seed on rocky soil. The rocky soil, sorry. Uh, you may remember back in the first parable. Um, the seed on the rocky soil received the message with joy, but with no deep roots, they don't last long and they wilt under persecution, under opposition. We need those deep roots and to understand, the found, the, to build that strong foundation to build everything else on, to have a house on the rock and not on the sand. Um, to give up everything for God is hard to comprehend, but... I mean, what does it mean to give up everything you have and to hate your own life? It's very strong wording. Um, but I think it's found in Mark 12, verse 30. Um, 
and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That is the cost. That is giving up everything you have. Um, it's not specifically talking about possessions. It's talking about um, these things. So by loving God with all of these things, godly things will be on your heart. And what you not only love, but the convictions you feel are for godly things. Um, your soul, which acts as a compass for right or wrong, they will point towards godly things. Your mind and what you think about, what you um, plan, what you, you know, think about your life. That is God, think about godly things. Um, and strength, what you do, how you use your energy and your time, using it for godly things instead of for your own things. That is giving up your life and your desires. Do what God seem, deems righteous and avoid selfish, lustful desires. We won't give everything all the time. It's a very hard thing to do, but making an effort to devote those things to God is what makes us a disciple. This can come from convictions about how we live our lives, the people we invite, the possessions we have. People will have different convictions, but to follow those is what puts God before yourself. Um, to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All those other things will follow from that. You need to start with those things. And maybe think about where maybe you don't love God with all of your... <laughs> um, and I understand that this section has been very daunting <laughs> to talk about the cost of something. But um, the Bible goes on to explain uh, the reward that comes from that cost. In Matthew 13, verse 44 to 45, the kingdom of heaven, this is another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Both parables show the kingdom of heaven is greater than everything else. So much so, we can only gain it by giving up everything we have. Um, both of these people, the merchant and the man who discovered the treasure, they both impoverished themselves to have this great treasure. And some scholars and people have suggested this is an investment. Like, you buy the field and you get the treasure, and then, you know, you can use that treasure further on. But I think we can all understand, no one in their right mind would sell everything they have for this one tiny thing, no matter how precious it is. That is selling everything they have. Um, and the merchant, because he sold everything he has, is no longer a merchant. Since he has that, that one pearl now, he's been redefined as he has nothing else to sell. After continually seeking pleasures, the pearl removes all of the desires. In the same way, the kingdom of heaven removes all of our desires, all of the earthly desires that we have. Um, and freedom from earthly pleasures is not because they're bad. I mean, we can definitely say some of them are bad, but not all of them. But it's to say that they're caught in a vision of God's love. And like it said earlier, with hating everyone else in comparison, it's greater than those things. Um, and it makes you wonder, are we able to assess the ultimate value to move everything we have for what we want? Uh, pick eternity over the here and now. A common misconception is that price is a sacrifice. But this is actually an exchange of something lesser for something greater. Jesus clearly explains the, the priceless nature of it. And the highest sacrifice, the highest price, comes for the greatest reward, the, the greatest object, the greatest treasure. And Jesus has laid out clearly this cost. Um, he hasn't hidden it behind or sugarcoated it. He's made it very clear how much this costs. But he's also shown us how much it's worth it and reminds us that it is worth it. And he has even shown he is willing to pay for all of it as he died on the cross. It is worth everything we have. And it's just one of the greatest treasures we could obtain. 
Um, and the kingdom of heaven is for everyone who's willing to pay the price, to love God with all their heart, mind, strength, and soul. We are naturally prideful, and there will be times all of us become selfish and desire to do things, become prideful or scramble for that seat of honor. But know that the cost of such a great invitation is worth it, and that to be honored in heaven, we need to be humble for that banquet. And I'll close with a question. Ask yourself, what do you need to give up to attain that treasure? For every, as I said before, everyone's got different convictions. I'm not going to tell you what you need to give up because I don't know what's on your heart. I don't know what's on your soul, mind, strength, whatever. That's for you and God to find. And to do that, to get an honorable seat in heaven, it requires us to, put, to be all in, which is a scary thing to do. I get that. Um, but it's something for the greatest reward. Yeah, thank you, Lord. So I'll uh, close in prayer real quick and I think have like a minute to really think and have a moment of silence, which we get so rarely nowadays, um, to really think about what we haven't given. Father God, I thank you for this day yeah. and I thank you for this great, great invitation. Um, I pray that I'll no longer make excuses, that I'll attend, that I'll take those moments in prayer to read the Bible, to have silence, to come and meet you, to satisfy our spiritual hunger with you, God. I pray that we'll, we'll, tra- we'll trade what's lesser for what's greater. And God, that we'll just do what's right in your eyes and that we'll be humble, a servant to others, And by doing so, we'll be honored in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.com.